Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone. This is Rob Orson with the Emerging Revolutionary War. Welcome back to our, our third year of doing Sunday night chats or Rev War revelries, as we call them. I'm joined with my good colleague here, Mark Malloy, who has a great background set up there for tonight's talk. Um, we're very happy to have one of my good friends, James Bish, with us tonight um, to discuss his new book, I Can't Tell a Lie, which I have a copy of here. I know Mark has one as well. Um, and the book talks about Parson Weems and the truth about George Washington's cherry tree, the Prairie Valley Forge, and other anecdotes. Um, before we turn over to Jim, just uh, let everyone know that if you don't know who Parson Weems is, you're going to know by the end of tonight. Uh, Parson Weems is a Prince William County native and here in Virginia, where I'm located. And he's one of the first biographers of George Washington. And his stories have been told over and over again um, throughout history since he publishes his first book. Um, and Jim has done a sort of lots of research and a new look into Parson Weems and his connections to Washington, where some of these stories might have come from, and taking a different angle at this story, which I think is fantastic. It's always good to have people on with us you look at these these topics and with a with a new fresh light. Uh, Jim was a history teacher here in Virginia, and he volunteers at several different organizations, especially Culpeper Museum and Culpeper Virginia, Historic Prince William, and other organizations as well. And Jim's a, is a great friend of ours. And Jim, welcome welcome to joining us tonight. Thank you very much. I appreciate the merging revolution having me on. Yeah, and so we'll just get started with kind of, like I said, a, a broad overview. What brought you to this topic? Why, why did you write this book? <laughs> well, um, I taught in Prince William County schools for over 30 years. I taught history at a high school there. And one of about 10 years into teaching, I um, began a local history course that they allowed me to teach on the in the high school level. So when you're teaching local history, you dig into everything that's local. And of course, as part of that, I would take Virginia history, then I'd come up and of course the Northern Neck impacted Prince William County. 
in Northern Virginia quite often because all those Northern Neck families eventually patented land up, up the Potomac River into Prince William, Fairfax, all of that area. And so I would follow all those families up, including the Carters, the Balls, the Lees, all those different families that had come up. And um, in doing so, I ran into the Washington family often, and I ran into the Yule family often. And of course, the Yule family um, has a pretty good background in Prince William County. So um, doing all that early, that teaching really brought me into the colonial time period of getting to know those families. And with that, I it was I ran right into Parson Wings. So who was he? Who I mean, so what's his background and what drew him to write this book on George Washington? Well, I think, um, and this is something most people don't realize, they attack Parson Weems, but they really don't know Parson Weems. They kind of look at him as a bubbling, you know, book salesman, that that's all he was concerned with was making money and that type of thing. But the guy was really from a very wealthy family in Maryland, very wealthy. His, his mother, um, excuse me, his grandmother came from Scotland with three children. Um, in the 1730s, or excuse me, the 1720s, and um, they settled two of her, two of her boys settled in Maryland. They were David Weems, who was um, Mason Weems's father, and the other one was James Weems, and um, he ends up um, with Billingsley Plantation in Upper Marble, Maryland, where he ends up taking over. Then they had a sister that married a very wealthy man by the name of William Moore, um, from Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia area. And so they, he came from a lot of wealth. Um, Wilma, Wilma Mina Moore, um, Weems Moore, who married William Moore in Philadelphia, when, he, when they got married, he was the second wealthiest man they claim in Philadelphia. So they, they ran in some really wealthy circles. Weems's father was a merchant. He had a lot of kids, 19, I think 12 of them were surviving when Mason was born just south of Annapolis. And when he was born, um, he had his father and two brothers were running the merchant business going back from Europe to the colonies. And this was, Weems was born in 1759 as the youngest of all those children. So he had a lot of older brothers. One of the brothers, David Weems Jr. ended up taking over the merchant company after um, in the 1780s, and that line will be merchants in the Chesapeake area up through the 20, into the 20th century. They will introduce the first, first steamships in the Chesapeake. So Weems, Weems came from a very wealthy connected family. So connected that they, after having that many children, um, they sent him to a boarding school, which was in Charles County around Port Tobacco. And that's where he was introduced to some of the wealthiest Marylanders. Um, that was a very wealthy time for, for um, Port Tobacco area right before the Revolutionary War. And so Weems ended up going to medical school in England and then came back home at the time of his father died in 1779 when the Revolutionary War was going on and decided to change his occupation from medicine to being a reverend. I think it fit him a little bit better. So he's, go ahead. You want me to keep going? Yeah, go ahead, you go, you go right ahead, you go right ahead. 
I mean, from, from there, he became a reverend. Uh, of course, that's not a good time to become a reverend at the end of the Revolutionary War. He had a he was connected with um, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams were ambassadors at the end of the Revolutionary War because he he needed to get um, to have a bishop approve of him, him being endorsed as a as a minister because there weren't any in the colony or in the states at that time. And um, he he finally was able to get that once once they um, abridged the part where you had to um, swear loyalty to the crown. That was the hang up. And once they got around that, then he came back probably as the first endorsed reverend minister from England after the Revolutionary War. He started, um, he ended up serving being rector of two parishes in Maryland. And those were both on a downturn, about 80% of the um, Church of England churches died after the Revolutionary War in Maryland. So it was not a good time to be head of a church of the Church of England, which became the Episcopal Church at that time. How, how does he become a bookseller? So well, he's, you know, think, a, a minister or Episcopal priest or pastor, and then he's known for, you know, for anyone that knows Parson Williams knows him, his relationship with books. Yes. Uh, which I have a problem with behind me here and Mark has a problem with. And so do you, Jim. We all have problems with books. So we would have made Parson Weems a lot of money. So what? how, how did he make that transition? Well, I think as the um, his clientele was was not attending church anymore. You know, before that time, the churches were financed through the state, through the colonies. And you had to depend on the um, the the parish, the parishioners at that point and a lot of other. Um, denominations were starting to come in, you know, that matched up with what people's beliefs were. So he was having a hard time and he still wanted to preach, but he he wanted to preach to the masses. And he got in, he went to a book fair um, in the early, around 1792 in Philadelphia, which sold a lot of religious works. And he thought that was a good way. Maybe I could publish religious works. I could use them out in um, going to book fairs, going to county um, court days, things like that, so he could reach a broader audience. And that got him started, literally um, doing religious works, got him started. And he started printing himself, um, uh, writing himself a few religious pamphlets, small things that he began to publish, using a few publishers, some from Maryland, some from Philadelphia. Um, so he, he gradually got a start that way into the publishing world. Now, he, well, he goes on to, I mean, his, his most famous association is with Washington, right? Um, uh, how did he, I guess, get turned on to that subject? Well, this is another thing that I learned uh, when I was doing research on Weems. Weems had a very influential cousin-in-law. His first cousin, um, who was Rebecca Moore, married William Smith. Reverend William Smith, and Reverend William Smith was hired by Benjamin Franklin um, in the 1750s to come into Philadelphia and create a college, basically. And so they created the College of Philadelphia. He became the first president of it, um, hired by, by um, Benjamin Franklin. And so Benjamin Franklin and him became very good friends. He ends up being president or the head of that college um, up through um, into the Revolutionary War. 
for the next 20 years. And um, Reverend Smith just loved Washington. He first met him on the frontier in the 1750s, not long after he was in Pennsylvania. He, he met him when he was um, in the French and Indian War. And then the, the guy was just enamored with Washington Smith was. Um, when he again touched base with him during the Revolutionary War, when Washington was at, at Ballet Forge and when he was at Philadelphia, he he ended up, um, he was a Mason as well. So he ended up bringing him to a lot of events in Philadelphia. And the, the guy was just mesmerized with Washington Smith was. Um, in, 17, in 1779, Smith took over um, the Kent County School of Maryland. Um, he'd been released from his duties because they didn't know about his, if he was loyal enough to keep him in that position. And by the way, the, the College of Philadelphia later became Penn. That's the school. That's the, he was the first president of what today is Penn. Um, and um, so he started a new school. He wanted to change the name. So he asked Washington if he could name the school after him. And in 17, um, in the 1780s, in 1780, he went to Washington and Washington the, um, at the time gave him the approval by 1782. And so he named it Washington College, which is in Chesterfield, Maryland. It's the oldest college named for, for the president. And just happened to be that when Weems was back after his father's death, he ended up attending there. And that's really where I think he was turned on to religion was through his cousin-in-law, um, William Smith, turned him on to becoming a reverend instead of a doctor. And that's when he went and, and pursued his um, divinity degree. But he, he went to school under his cousin for about a, for about a year or so in, in Maryland. And that's where I think he was just enamored with Washington. His, his uncle, I mean, his cousin-in-law just was so enamored with Washington. And I think that fed into, into Weems. There's another connection that nobody has ever put together. And I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Weems went to Charles County as a, as a teenager, went to a boarding school there. And it just happened to be the boarding school um, that, um, that um, the Craigs went to. It was, um, and that's where he was first connected with, with Craig's. Dr. James Craig, who had served with Washington in the French and Indian War, was in um, Charles County, Maryland, around Port Tobacco. So Weems knew the Craig's um, early. He, he knew the Craig's when he was 12, 13, and, and James Craig Jr. was just a year younger than, than Parson Weems. So they were attending the same, the same, um, school together um, in Charles County, Maryland. So he was introduced to the Crakes and was introduced to his, his cousin-in-law and both of them had connections with Washington. Yeah, that, that's an amazing part about your book is all these different connections you tie in. Uh, Mark, go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm just gonna say, I mean, one, one of the things I didn't realize that I did from your book was uh, that Weems actually corresponded with Washington himself uh, on a few different occasions, which um, I think typically when I've heard of uh, Weems described, uh, usually it's in the context of the 19th century and it's usually uh, uh, almost as if there was little to no connection between Weems and Washington. Uh, so I found that 
really fascinating that that not only this all these connections in the area and from different family members but but you know that he actually you know wrote back and forth with washington at least a couple times um well that weems was very connected i mean um into the family i should go back and say that dr craig writes a letter to george washington coming out of the french and indian war and asking okay what shall i do what advice should you give me about where I should go to start a practice after after his military service is over with. We don't know the answers to that, but it wasn't within the next within the year. Um, Dr. Craig, James Craig, ends up marrying um, Mary Amney Yule, who was and Mary Amney Yule's mother was Sarah Ball Yule, who was a um, first cousin once removed to Mary Ball Washington, and they both grew up within five miles of each other. They were only a couple years apart, Sarah Ball Yule and Mary Ball Washington. So that connection, and I'm sure, I can't prove it, but I'm 99% sure that it was George Washington that probably introduced him to his, to um, introduce Dr. James Craig to his cousin. And they were married in Bel Air Mansion there in Prince William County in 1760 before they moved on to Port Tobacco. So I'm sure there was that connection there should also mention that um, the three there were three people that were involved in the iron industry together that were that were connected and that was Augustine Washington George Washington's father and Charles Yule and Nathaniel Chapman all of those three people married ball relation ball relatives and they were all in the iron industry together and Charles Yule came to Prince William County as, as a as an iron baron he was looking for iron along the Neabsco along the Occoquan um, he had he he died relatively young. He dies in the 1740s when he's in his late 30s. Don't know if it was a medical reason or if it was an accident, but um, they they had a, a brother he did Bertrand Yule that was also up there, and he ended up helping and stuff. But they the Yules Charles Yule was going places. He was married to Sarah Ball, so there there's that connection with the Ball family and the Yules early, and it just happens to be that that the person that inherited Bel Air Plantation after Charles Yule's death, it was his son, Jesse Yule, who ended up having a daughter um, named Fanny Yule. And Fanny Yule was the man, was the woman that married um, Mason Weems. Now, people always ask, one of the things is, okay, in, the, in 1795, after Yule, uh, excuse me, after Weems started selling his pamphlets, um, in, in 1795, he marries Fanny Yule in Prince William County at Bel Air. He ends up marrying her in 1795. And I don't know for sure how a lot of people don't understand how they ever made connections. They think that he ran into her when he was selling books through Dumfries. But the connection had to have been um, his connection with the with Dr. Craig. Because Dr. Craig and, Doc, and Mary Amney Craig, or Eel Craig, his wife, she was the aunt to um, Fanny Yule. So I'm sure they introduced Fanny to um, Dr. Weems or Dr. Weems or Reverend Weems, because Reverend Weems knew the Crakes when he was a teenager, 1790s. I'm sure they were introduced, and that's the connection with all those. And by the way, um, Dr. Crake just happened to be Washington's closest friend from the French and Indian War to the deathbed. You know, and he was with him all the way through the Revolutionary War at his side, literally. There are tense 
commands were usually right next to each other. And that's the reason he took the positions that he did, Dr. Craig, so he could be close to um, the general. Yeah, he, the, the Craigs had to introduce him to the Yules. There's no way he met his wife selling books. I just don't buy it. <laughs> no. I just, I don't no. buy it. That's a hard. <laughs> they they but, had those family yeah. connections. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, and, and, and Jim, the, the way you were able to keep all these, you know, the, uh, the Virginia, uh, now it's not a family tree. It's more of a family hedgerow together with all the names is always, has always impressed me because I get confused because I all use the same names and, and the balls pop up and the Yules pop up and the Craigs pop up. And um, that's one of the best things about your book is you kind of make all these connections and you show where, how all these families are so connected. Um, so, I, so I'm going to bring it up to when he, you know, he, he produces the first version of his book. I know you'll get into this, how there's different versions of it. Uh, so Washington dies in 1799. And so there seems to be a mad rush to, to get a biography out. We know John Marshall was working on a biography of George Washington. How, how was Weems able to get something out pretty quick? Uh, when did he begin writing the book? Did he begin writing before Washington died or after Washington died? Well, obviously, he married into the Ball family when he married Fanny Ewell in 1795, which was four years before Washington dies. Um, and he was enthralled with Washington. Uh, th there's an encounter in 1787 in which Dr. James Craig Jr., um, who Weems had gone to school with, probably at the plantation school in, in Charles County, Maryland, how Dr. James Craig Jr. takes him to Mount Vernon one day. And that's in Washington's diary, how he stays there overnight. And um, so that tells you how far back Weems was probably fascinated with Washington. He, I'm sure he wanted to meet him. Um, one thing that Washington doesn't say is where he came from. He says afterward they were heading back to Port Tobacco, but he doesn't say where they came from. I'm, I'm convinced that they stayed with Sina Ball McCarty, um, with, who only lived about five miles from there. Um, the, Cardis and the Washingtons, again, first cousin once removed, they were very close. They moved up to Fairfax County in the 1730s. Um, Sina at that time was a, was a little girl. She was about four years older than George. Um, her, her mother died in 1730. So when George was born in 1732, Sina was living with her father and six other siblings under the age of eight. So all, all of that was going on as kind of a sideshow. So the McCarty's and the Washington's were close up there before they moved to Fredericksburg. And um, so Washington, I should say Weems, he, he knew about the families and all of those connections. So we, Weems, Weems, I think, had a good background on Washington through his cousin-in-law, through, through obviously the crepes through um, his wife and their connections. So there's no doubt that I have that Weems had been collecting stories, asking people from 1795 and before. He writes Washington a number of times after their encounter in 1787. He writes him while he's president in Philadelphia. So um, from 1792 until 1799, just months before Washington's death, there's correspondence between Weems and Washington. And I'm thinking, you know, we all know none of us are living forever. So I'm sure that sooner or later he realized that Washington was, in the, was not going to be around anymore. And he, he was ready. He had family members. He had friends that knew Washington. 
and I think he he was ready from the start. He was he'd been he'd been writing already by that most of the most of the decade of the early 1790s. So he was prepared. He was prepared whenever that time came. So can you talk about a little bit about the different versions that came out? I know there's the one that came out, you know, he's got different uh, revisions of this book that uh, seem to have a little bit different, uh, you know, stories in them that, you know, because if you pick up a copy, it might be, depending on what version is, you might not have everything that you see in a later version. Yeah, his first versions were small pamphlets. They were 60 to 80 pages long. They, they weren't very large. Um, that's what he was selling. They were flying off the shelves, as he said it. And um, by 1806, he was publishing the fifth, the fifth volume or the fifth edition. It came out in 1806. I think what happened was that Jesse Ball um, ends up dying right before 1805 in uh, Bel Air. And I'm sure that his sister, who was Mary Amney Craig, and probably even his aunt, who was Sina Ball McCartney, quite possibly came to Bel Air to say, you know, to, to visit when he was, his health was in decline. And at that point, I'm sure they all knew Washington very well. And they, by that time, the book was doing, his pamphlet was doing so well that he probably knew. And by that time, he was hooked up with Matthew Carey, who was the largest publisher in the country at that time out of Philadelphia. Um, he was selling books for him. And, and um, so I'm sure that in 1805, he knew he was going to, publish a much larger volume. And it came out in 1806. It was the fifth edition. It included the cherry tree story. It included the prayer at Valley Forge. It included um, a variety of things that hadn't been earlier. And I'm sure to me, I'm thinking they were probably just saying, you know, when you write your enlarged volume, make sure this story gets in there, make sure this story gets in there. Because there's no doubt that the Yule family knew all the stories of Sina Ball and what she had been. Sina Ball undoubtedly um, went, spent some time as a girl at Mount Vernon. She spent some time at Cedar, at Cedar Run Farm, um, which was the McCartney place in Fairfax County. And she knew a lot of stories. And the Ewells knew a lot of stories because they were in the iron business with George's father. So those families were close and they knew stories and I'm sure they told, you know, you got to get this story in, you got to get this anecdote in. And 1807 the, or 1806, the big book came out, it was over 200 pages and it pretty much remained that length through um, after that, after 1806. But that was the big, that was the big jump with the famous anecdotes were included in the 1806 volume. Um, I got a question. The uh, so so as you say, it, it's very popular. Um, could you speak on like how popular his stories were? Because I feel like you know Abraham Lincoln and later people specifically point to Weems's book as being you know kind of the the book that they grew up reading about Washington and 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 how long. What was the longevity of its popularity? And then when did it like <laughs> stop being popular? Uh, and it seems like it was fairly soon thereafter that then a lot of the stuff was simply discounted. Um, could you just talk a little bit about that, the, the, the life of this, these books uh, and what happened to them? I, I could talk a lot about that. Um, his, his, the popularity of Weems's book 
the life of George Washington really never died in popularity until probably the 20th century. It was it was it was always um, in print well into the 20th century. Um, so it it went through over a hundred editions. I mean, it, it just flew off the shelves. Um, I you know Weems really wasn't attacked until the 1880s. Henry Cabot Lodge was the first major historian, and he was senator from Massachusetts in 1889, um, almost 90 years after Weems publishes the first book and after everybody else that knew Washington and the new Weems was, had passed away in 1889, Senator Henry Lodge, Henry Cabot Lodge, began a tag, wrote a book on Washington, and he called Weems' stuff a joke. He said that no good Virginian in the 1730s would talk the way Weems said that they talked. And I'm thinking, I don't know of any New Englander knew how anybody in Virginia talked in the 1730s, because it was definitely different. But, but then after that, Woodrow Wilson, a few years later, writes a book on Washington, and he agrees with, with um, Henry Cabot Lodge. They, they don't give any proof. They just say it wouldn't have happened. And then after that, you've got um, a number of um, William Thayer, who is the head of the American Historical Association. He starts attacking him. And then by the 20th century, the historians just laugh and talk about Weems, and none of them ever offer any proof or even know who Weems is or try to even come up with a connection. They just they just claim that um, Weems made it up. He wasn't connected to the Washington family. And um, there's, as I said earlier, there's a lot of mystery about how Weems ended up meeting Washington at Mount Vernon with Dr. James Craig Jr. And they don't realize um, um, Minister Bishop, who was a or Minister, um, the can't think of his name right now. He was a he was a bishop for in Virginia, wrote a book on the churches of Virginia, the, the initial churches of the Virginia. And he's the one that said he knew the Weems family, which he did, and he knew Weems because they were both ministers. And he's the one that said that he was at the Charles County School. So um, all those connections, you know, end up end up have, um, happening where Weems and Washington are connected. Um, but as far as as far as his books, and another thing that I think Weems Weems falls short, or the, the people don't realize how great he is. I consider him the Mark Twain of the early 19th century. A few, a few literary critics in the last 20 years have recognized what a great author he was. He was the most well-read author from 1800 to 1840 in America. And he's really the first author of any, of any importance after the revolution. And people kind of disregard that, but he, there were, like you said, Abraham Lincoln, if you go back into that pre-1860 time period, there hardly is a school child that hadn't read Weems. And he's he's really dominant. And I think the attacks in the 20th century on him have really cut down and impacted how famous this guy should be. Because he, he's starting to get a little traction on the literary scene now, but he really was America's first author. Before that time, we were British authors coming over, but he was really... America's first author with an American voice, the way Americans talk, common Americans. And so he, 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 he was very important, his literary works, most read author, he, he, he wrote 
the way people read or talked and his books just flew off the shelves. He sold them. He always tells how his life of Washington, he can't keep it in print while he was alive. I think too, when you look at it compared to Marshall's biography of Washington, which is, is it five volumes or I forget? I think it's four. Four <laughs> volumes, yeah. You know, if you are an average American, you can't really afford a lot of books and you want to buy something about Washington, you're probably going to gravitate toward Weems's book rather than four volumes by John Marshall, right? I mean, so I think that's a little bit to it as well. Like you said, he spoke more of a common voice and also obviously one book of 200 pages there about is a little bit more affordable for most Americans than a four volume uh, set that, you yeah. know, someone with more money would be able to get. What, one other thing that Weems did that wasn't being done at the time to a large extent is was he was taking the bookstore to rural America. You know, 95% of America was very rural, small town, farmers, things like that. Um, and they had no access to books where he was really a first, um, he would take his bookstore in his, in his wagon and he would, in his Jersey wagon, and he would fill it up with books and he'd go out to the small towns and, and he would start talking where the East Coast cities had bookstores, your, your Philadelphia's, your Boston's, your New York's. Urban people could get books, but the, the the rural people just couldn't. And he really opened up doors to becoming really the first door-to-door -door salesman, um, which was very unique. Um, there, it became a it became a thing in the 19th century selling books that way. And most of the best sellers were former reverends because one, they were trusted, being a reverend, and they communicated well. So. He, he really was suited to sell books. And of course, when you're writing a book and then you're great at selling books, it's kind of, kind of a good match. The unfortunate thing of that was he, um, it was costly being on the road all the time. So that, that was both hard on his body physically and it was demanding on the pocketbook. Even though Matthew Carey, the publisher, hired him to do so, it, it, was, it was tough. And it was it was demanding both economically and physically for Weems. Yeah, I'm sure it was hard in his family. Mark travels all the time, right, Mark? So <laughs> Mark's gonna yell at me later for that. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to bring up the cherry tree story because it's behind Mark right now. Uh, Mark, your head is blocking the creepy George Washington face there. That that painting always weirds me out. Um, but it's more artistic than than reality. So the cherry tree story. One of the things is I. Uh, found out in your book and just talking with you um, weeks ago when you when the book came out is where the cherry tree story took place. So Mark and I live near Fredericksburg in Virginia here. Obviously, we've always been taught that the cherry tree story happened down, you know, Ferry Farm where Washington grew up as, as a young boy after they moved um, from Northern Neck. But you have a different take on that. Can you uh, share a little bit about your research and, and what your take is on where the cherry tree story uh, probably took place? Yeah, um, it's really not me, it's Weems. Weems tells us where it took place. And nobody reads Weems, they just attack him. Weems says that <laughs> the source the source was a a, a close was a female that was a close that was close that was a distant cousin to Washington that was a little bit older than Washington. They both were children. Um, and he gives the date of the fall of fall of 1737. Um, he gives that date when he's talking about when he's talking about 
um, how the orchards provide, God provides fruit in the fall, you know, to take care of us. And, and so that's one story. And then he, he later comes up and he says the same person that I gave, told that anecdote um, in right, right about the time George Washington turns um, six. Well, George Washington turned six in February 22nd or February 11th, the old calendar of 1738. So both of those, the fall of 1737 through February of 1738, it's about a four month time frame in there. And, um, and during that time period, Washington was living at Little, Little Hutting Creek in um, actually Prince William County at the time. It doesn't turn to be Fairfax County until 1742, but it was a it was Little Hunting Creek, which which later Lawrence Washington will name Mount Vernon. So Washington lived there for three years. They, they didn't move to Fredericksburg until November or December of 1738, when George was six and three quarters months old or three quarters years old. So Weems Weems tells everybody where the story took place, and it makes sense. Mary Ball Washington and Augustine Washington and Little George were up in Mount were up at Little Hunting Creek, which is now Mount Vernon. Um, Sarah Ball, who had married Dennis McCarty, they were living at Cedar Grove Plantation, which is which is only about five miles from Mount Vernon. They both were on the Truel Parish vestry together. They were making decisions all that time period. Um, and they were close, the, the balls were close. Mary Ball, Washington and, and Sarah Ball were first cousins. And I'm sure at that point, Sina Ball, who was a second cousin to George, she was, when he turned six, she was turning 10. She was born in February of 1728. So I'm sure she was visiting both her cousin, who, who um, which Mary Ball was her father's first cousin, and Sarah Ball was her father's niece. So I'm sure she was up there living with them at time periods while her single father who had lost his wife was down in Lancaster County um, dealing with that. So, so that's where the setting really was. And anybody that really reads what Ween says could figure that out, but nobody cares. What happened in the early 20th century, there was a guy that bought Ferry Farm and he wanted to figure out a way to make money off the of Ferry Farm. So he started broadcasting that that come to Ferry Farm, we've got cherry trees, we've got the original cherry tree, all that. So he was advertising um, Ferry Farm as the place where the cherry tree stood when it really wasn't. And of course, people believe what they were told. So, and it really wasn't that. That's fascinating. Uh, I, I really like, uh, yeah, you know, and, and they are now, in the, I mean, the 20th century, just attacking Weems uh, and not taking it really seriously any of these anecdotes um but i'm interested uh, uh what the reaction was from most people uh, uh at the time of its publication um do we know any any sort of you know you, you mentioned he has all these connections with the family but yeah does the family ever say anything about uh his book uh and in particular i'm, I'm really interested in uh, uh george washington and park custis who was george washington's adopted grandson uh, and, and, you know, uh, I, I believe he thought of himself as the, uh, the, the holder of the Washington family legacy, uh, in many respects. Um, uh, 
what, what was some of the, the reaction from, uh, or do we know uh, from people from when uh, memes books first came out? Well, one thing that I do know is that none of the Washington family members that were close said anything bad about the book. You know, they, if it would have been a lot of lies, they would react to um, Mason Weems actually um, dedicates his first copy to Martha Washington. And um, it was dedicated to her. Um, George Washington Park Custis, he ends up putting in another anecdote in his works later on by the 1850s about George Washington can't tell a lie when he, when he kills one of his mother's favorite colts. He, um, the cold evidently had a heart attack when he was trying to write it. It got overexcited. And um, he, he um, Park Custis tells about the story that, that he told his mother, you know, he says, I, I will admit I, I killed your favorite colt. And that didn't come from Weems, that came from George Washington Park Custis. Um, he, he never said anything derogatory towards Weems that anything he had ever written, that Weems had ever written was wrong. Neither did his sister um, ever say anything. Miss Lewis, did she ever say anything about what Weems wrote was wrong? And um, a lot of stuff that Weems has in his book, Park Custis did too, that came from Dr. Craig. And Dr. Craig and, and the Weemses were very close after the marriage, you know? So in fact, Dr. Craig ends up telling about the famous story that during the French and Indian War, that Washington was hit two or three times and bullet holes went through the jacket and he he never was killed and they then later on their trip out west they ran into a the one of the native americans that were fighting against washington in 1755 and relayed to him that story that you must have had his shield around you and um we and craig was with washington when he was told that story that shows up in 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 um park in george washington park custis's books but, you know, George Washington Park Custis, you can't condemn him because he grew up in the Washington family. He would have known the stories. So historians have pretty much laid off of George Washington Park Custis. And because they never tried to find out the connection with, with Parson Weems, they decided he's the guy that will attack. Um, none of Washington's close family members ever said a word against Weems. Um, none of them that knew Washington very well ever said a word. In fact, Weems's and Yule family members clear into the 20th century in newspaper accounts, tell reporters that claim that Weems made up the stories. They, I've got resources in newspapers where they're defending um, Weems and saying that the Yule family, those stories were passed down generation after generation. But of course, historians say, well, you would say that because you're a member of the family, you're descended from the Yule family or the Weems family. But who else would know those stories except Yule, Weems, or Ball's family members? Now, I think that's a, that's a really convincing argument because, uh, and you're right, I feel like Custis's uh, 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 stories, uh, you know, they're, they're frequently cited uh, because of his uh, connection. Uh, and like you said, Weems has this similar connection uh, that's just kind of ignored. Um, and so he's just, yeah, the the bookseller trying to make a buck. Um, uh, but yeah, no, that's, but I, I find that really fascinating that the time period, uh, you would imagine if these were fabricated stories that members of the family would be uh, pretty vocal uh, about the fact that uh, these were 
you know, not true. Um, so I find that really interesting. Yeah. And another thing that I always thought funny, I don't know about you, 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 you both are married. I'm married. I don't think I would go very far writing lies about my wife's relatives. You know, I mean, there's something there that I think, <laughs> and, and you have to understand too, Weems, Weems was quite respected. Whenever I run across somebody in the 1820 to 1810 and they talk about Weems, they talk about how he was eccentric, but they always say that he was one of the most respected people in the community, that he, um, that, that he was someone that everybody liked, that he was the most famous person. Um, in, in the neighborhood, they never put him down. They always say that, you know, he was welcoming when, when they had the, the um, court days in Dumfries, that his house was always open for anybody and everybody to come to. Um, and so I never ever get that this was a guy that was going to lie. Two of, his, two of his closest friends were reverends, um, Lee Massey. Lee Massey ended up burying Patsy Custis. She, he gave the sermon and was the minister um, and Weems visits him a lot. He's quoted in Weems's work. There, there's an account, a couple newspapers were there together. Weems says they're very close friends. Massey never denies it in any of, in any of his work. And of course, um, Spence Grayson. Spence Grayson was the um, was um, half brother to or stepbrother to Weems's father-in-law, Jesse Ewell. So um, there, Sarah Yule, after, after um, Charles Yule passed away, she ends up marrying Benjamin Grayson. And so they're step family for a while, you know? So, so there's that connection. So Weems, Weems was respected. He wasn't somebody that was gonna tell lies. He just wasn't that kind of a guy. Um, one of the debates Mark and I've always had is about Washington's religious uh, beliefs and, and um, part of that is that story at Valley Forge, and you write a lot. I'm looking at the pages right now in your book about the story that shows up in this 1808 version, the sixth edition, you say, um, about Washington kneeling at and praying at Valley Forge, which is something when I was a kid I read about. It was in a textbook that I had as a kid that, this, you know, when I first went to Valley Forge, I wanted to know exactly where Washington kneeled. So talk a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, about that story and 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 through your research some of the where you think some of the basis for that story comes from okay yeah that's that's something that i never knew but i i always knew that if i followed the family or connections of weems and or the yule family that i would get to where the connections were of his anecdotes and that anecdote comes from from actually the we the weems connection from philadelphia um as i mentioned earlier william smith who was well, Weems' first cousin's husband in Philadelphia that was a reverend very well known. In fact, William Smith gives a eulogy to Ben Franklin's um, funeral. He was the primary eulogy of Benjamin Franklin's funeral. He had a lot of money. He had owned thousands of acres of land. His stepfather, William Moore, lived just to the west of present of Valley Forge. And um, William Smith himself ends up owning um, owning a house on the current grounds of Valley Forge. He owned it from the 1760s. So it was already under William Smith's ownership and his wife um, before, before Valley Forge occurred. Um, Isaac Potts, who the story was about, um, he, he owned the house that Washington's head, headquarters was in. And I talk about, um, I looked at some of the works of the 19th century and they talk about movement. 
how the um how the Quakers at that time to feed the army the Quakers were allowed to bring bring their their stuff in to get um to get milled for the army and then they were allowed to take a milled good some milled good back for bread and um they said that they pretty much had free basis because of the needs of the Continental Army during that winter and since Potts would have owned the place he would have also had free will at the time he was he lived in Pottsville which was about 20 miles north of there but he would have had free reign he owned where Washington was headquartered so it makes sense that he was there um the original story um I've read some works from from um Potts's own family that deviate a little bit they never say who the wife was they mentioned the wife where Weems ends up mentioning the wife and he gets the wife's name wrong he I think what happened was he was told that it was Isaac um, Potts's wife but Weems probably checked to see who Isaac Potts wife was when he was hearing the story probably came from Reverend Smith himself because Reverend Smith's grandson said during the winter of Valley Forge that he was up in Valley Forge preaching he was one of the few reverends that went up there and preached during that cold winter and I think he probably heard it from Reverend Smith that his wife so he ended up really um, finding out the name of Isaac Potts's wife but by 1800 Isaac Potts's wife was different than it was in in 1778 um, his wife had died his first wife had died in 17 um, by 1780 and he remarried so Weems mistakenly uses the name of his second wife Isaac Potts's second wife and that gets attacked by historians but as far as him being religious Washington Washington was a member of two churches he he helped both Christ Church in Alexandria and um Pohick Church who would Trill Parish he he funded he was the highest um he he gave more money to both those churches than any other parishioner he was on the Truro Parish vestry board for 30 some years uh, no doubt he was religious Lee Massey said that he often he was he was one of his best church attendees um who was the reverend at um at Pohick Church and many people that were around Mount Vernon do, have documented that that they would often see Washington kneeling in prayer early in the morning that was kind of his routine um so you know it's not that fabulous of a story but historians have made it out to be something that's very unusual to the point where I've heard one historian say that Washington wouldn't kneel at Mount Vernon because he wouldn't he wouldn't get his wouldn't want to get his trousers dirty and I'm thinking if you were worried about that that's not something Washington would have thought about when you're riding horses and all of this stuff. One of the things I'm looking through your book right now, and uh, you have on page 259, and I put the link, uh, put a link on the chat for anyone interested in buying Jim's book. I highly recommend it. You list a lot of the anecdotes, who wrote it, Weems or or Park Custis, and then uh, wh what you believe to be the source for the story, which I think. You know, this is this is really good information right here for people that uh, know that Weems, you know, the biography of Washington, know some of these anecdotal stories. You know, you have it here where you think which connection Weems used to gain uh, the, the information on these stories. It's it's a lot of research. So, with your research, what was the most? I have to ask since we ask all of our authors this that we bring on. What was the most interesting or surprising thing you found doing all this research? Well. Um... 
probably going back 20 some years I've been working on this I haven't I haven't been writing but I because of my position teaching local history I was learning all this stuff which would infuriate me when Washington historians would get on and say that all these things were a lie when I knew the Yule family and the Ball family and that's tough to deal with but I would say the surprising thing that I ran into was the Weems family I was as Mark mentioned earlier he was kind of a bumbling book writer and book salesman and nobody gave him much credit and when I found how much wealth Weems's family had um, it, it was really shocking to me Weems's dad provided a number of schooners a number of ships for the American Revolution um, his uncle was one of the wealthiest men in um, Anne Arundel County uh, Maryland and his his other aunt and uncle were among the wealthiest in Philadelphia and that's the thing that really surprised me is how much wealth Weems came from and how much influ how many influential people Weems knew and and that was a little bit later because I didn't know that until the last three or four years of research before I wrote the book I, I knew a lot about the Ball family and the Yule and the Washington but in order to really understand Weems I had to know him and that was the big eye-opener for me was how wealthy Weems's family and the kind of people he came from, his stock. Um, so I'm going to ask you, since you're a big fan of Washington, other than Parson Weems's life of Washington, what is your favorite biography of George Washington? My favorite biography of George Washington. Other than the Parson Weems book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I actually like, um, oh man, got me on the spot. The, um, the, the, the guy that was it, doing his papers, um, at, and, um, at the university of Virginia editing his papers. And it, it was, it was about the, it was about Weems and the, um, the, the myth of George Washington. I can't come up with his name. I can see him, but I can't think Wingle. of his name yeah Lindell that's it yeah yeah um Edward and um but that that one I thought was was pretty good he didn't condemn Weems too bad um he he talked a lot about other things that kind of of mythic and one of the things you know the McGuffey readers McGuffey really really started adding things to Weems's words and when they started putting in the readers and by the 1830s so so he kind of made stories that Weems really didn't say. For example, cutting down a cherry tree. Weems never said that. Weems said he, Weems' father said he barked the cherry tree, a small English cherry tree, which hmm. you give a, a boy, a five or six year old boy, a little axe, they're going to be hacking on things. And I'm sure this little English cherry tree got barked to the point where he said he didn't think it would survive. And then it gets into Washington cut down a cherry tree. You know, there's a big leap from barking a tree to cutting it down. And those are later writers that kind of made that those leaps that that Weems gets accused of. That's a good point. It's not. I was just reading it. Uh, Mark and I were reading it a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, it says bark, not chop. So that's. We always talk about chopping down a cherry tree. And it's interesting, these stories still resonate, even though, as you said, many historians are have been discounting weems for the past hundred years. But, you know, even my son who just finished fourth grade knows these stories from school. So there's they're still resonating some way, somehow, 
whether it's the, the true history of Washington or the mythology of Washington, I think they're still there. And I think that's what makes your book, you know, very relevant today is these stories are still told. Most Americans know the cherry tree. They probably don't know about the barking of the tree, know more about the chopping of the tree. Um, you know, they talk about the, the kneeling at Value Forge up there at Value Forge. So I think some of these stories just still resonate. People just, people just know them. Um, and whether they know them because they're true or wrong, or, or, or false, but I think, you know, the fact that you've got all this research connecting Weems, who he was, like you said, it's important to, to study the man that wrote these stories um, and his connections with people that knew Washington. Uh, as Mark mentioned earlier, one of, my, one of the most fascinating things you point out in the book is throughout his life, these contemporaries of Washington, his members of his family, never write in any papers or anywhere, this is all garbage <laughs> you know they never do yeah. it and that's interesting yeah to, to to me that tells me a lot you know if, if if you have something that's a lie especially your wife's family people are going to write about it so that give to me gives a lot of credibility to what weems was saying when close family members of washington never speak up and they certainly could have like you mentioned before george washington park custis he kind of was the was the holder of all the legends of washington and and never said a word against wings. Yeah, no, I, I find it all really fascinating. And to Rob's point, you know, uh, despite over a hundred years of, uh, oh, these are all made up things. Uh, uh, as he said, these stories, you know, my six-year-old knows the story of uh, Washington in the, in the tree. Um, and, you know, we went to uh, Ferry Farm uh, for uh, uh, his birthday celebration. They still do. Uh, a contest to throw uh, a, a stone across the Rappahannock. Um, they're still uh, and, and, and they're, they're talking, of, you know, these stories are still in the zeitgeist. People still know them, uh, even though most people think that they or a lot of people think that they're they're, they're false stories. And I think that your research, uh, I really hope, makes people uh, think twice about uh, memes and all these anecdotes and that uh, there might be um, more truth to them than uh, than they would otherwise give them credit for. Uh, but also, you know, me and me and Rob are, you know, you know, work in public history as well. There's lots of historic sites. You mentioned, you know, Poet Church. I saw one of our viewers uh, uh, has some uh, a family uh, there. Uh, you mentioned Poet Church. You mentioned Mount Vernon, Ferry Farm. Uh, there's also the the Weems Box Museum. Uh, what's your what do you think is the best place for somebody to go to to to, to learn about George Washington or Weems, and then uh, and and hopefully you know some of these places can uh, continue to, to to look into Weems and these stories and, and and try and dissect more of the truth from them. Yeah, well, there's a lot of good places, <laughs> as as you and Prince William County, you know, Weems Bots is there. Certainly, all of these places, the Blackburn family, really connected into the Washington family at Ripon Lodge. Um, and there, there's just Mount Vernon. One of the, you know, one of the places that nobody knows about, and I know where, I know that it was the place that Washington, that the McCarty story sign had told Harson Weems, and that's Mount Air in Fairfax County. It's, there is a historical site now, it burned down in the 1990s, but I'm sure that's where Harson Weems, 20 years before he wrote the book, and he said 20 years before when he first um, learned of the story, that that's where the story was told at Mount Air in Fairfax County. And I know that he wrote the book, either at Bell Air Plantation 
in Prince William County or his home on Main Street in Dumfries. That's where the story was written. So there's a lot to be proud of. And of course, as I said, Parson Weems, the most read author for 40 years, the beginning of the 19th century, and nobody's really given him his due respect. He, his burial places at Bel Air, um, he's, it's, it's just a fascinating person. I always go, one last thing, I always go and ask people whenever I give a talk, how many of you have heard the cherry tree story? Every hand goes up. Then they say, how many of you believe the cherry tree story is true? No hands go up. <laughs> historians, historians have for 140 years been telling, in my view, been telling a big lie for 140 years and they cannot put up any proof that it's a lie. And half of them have never even read Weems or anything about him, but they still flaunt that story. That's great. I love your passion, Jim. And for, for those watching, um, again, the, the link to buy this book is in the chat. Here's a book right here. Mark has this copy. It's a great read. Jim, thank you for joining us tonight. Really appreciate you sharing this passion. I, we, only, we only touched on the very surface of all this stuff you have in here about these different stories about Weems and the connections. If you want to know more, please pick up Jim's book. Um, in two weeks, uh, join us right back here for Emerging Rev War Revelry. will be just our ERW members talking about battlefields of the Revolutionary War, just talking about our favorite battlefields, some of the most unknown battlefields and, and great places to visit. So just be an evening of us having a drink and just talking some history. So Jim, thanks again. And thank you everyone for watching and you all have a great week. Take care. Well, thank you to the Emerging Revolutionary War. Thank you, Rob, and thank you, Mark. Thank you.